Hey everyone, I hope y'all are staying safe and healthy and you're settling into some sort of new rhythm of life in quarantine. To help stop the spread of COVID-19, most of KPBS is working from home just like you. And as you probably know by now, the border has been closed to all non-essential traffic. The border is the center of our show. In a lot of the episodes, we're actually out there with folks as they cross through it. And that's why we have to take a break on production of the high-quality, super-produced pieces you're used to hearing from us. We think it's best if everyone who can stays where they are right now. The plan is to continue only here by having important conversations with border people. We won't be in the studio, so you'll have to forgive us for the quality of the recordings, but we will keep working on ways to make it better. This week's episode was actually recorded at KPBS before we all started practicing social distancing. And we felt like it was important to call and get a post-COVID-19 update from Dulce, who you'll hear about shortly, to talk about her biggest concerns and thoughts on the coronavirus and how it relates to her work at the border. You can hear that update at the end of the interview. If you're having any issues related to the border and the virus, please reach out to us by calling or texting at 619-452-0228. Thank you and hang in there, y'all. Now on to the show. Dulce Garcia is undocumented, but her status has mostly fueled her ambition, not stifled it. Dulce is an immigration lawyer, and she's recently become one of the most high-profile immigrant advocates working on the border today. Her own experience with the immigration system has been key to her career. It drives her. A few years ago, Dulce became a plaintiff instead of a lawyer in one of the country's biggest immigration cases. She and other Dreamers sued the Trump administration after its decision to end DACA. That's the government program that allows kids brought to the U.S. without papers most of the benefits of a citizen. The case is still awaiting a Supreme Court decision, but the very existence of the lawsuit has allowed hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients to renew their status while the case remains open. Recently, Dulce stepped up as the new executive director of Border Angels, an immigrant rights nonprofit based in San Diego. She's bringing her legal experience to the role, and the nonprofit is doing things it's never done before. A few months back, Border Angels posted its first bond and helped a Cameroon man seeking asylum get released from detention. Dulce, welcome to the show. Bienvenida. Okay, so we'll start at the beginning. You were born in Mexico, right? Yes. What do you remember about life there? I remember my grandma's house. Concrete walls, um, the roof was sheet metal, and there were gaps in between them. The floor uh, was actually muddy. I remember when it would rain, running to the bed to make sure that the covers wouldn't fall off because then they would get muddy. Uh, so we come from a very humbled background, but I mean, there, there are good memories up until when we did cross, when we arrived uh, in Tijuana, and I remember being robbed at gunpoint um, so I, I only remember vaguely flash, uh, flashbacks of my childhood. Where, where was your childhood? I'm from Cuernavaca, Morelos, Mexico. Mm. I often hear stories about how beautiful it is, how I should go visit, but I really can't. So being undocumented means that I can't travel. Even with DACA, uh, our ability to travel abroad has been rescinded. So I don't know the burial place for my grandparents. Um, I don't remember 
much of it. I was really young when I came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Why did your parents decide to move to America? My mom's a visionary. My mom knew that if we had remained in Mexico that we wouldn't have had the same opportunities. Um, and she was absolutely right. You know, I'm a lawyer today, but uh, she had struggled uh, with extreme poverty growing up. And as much as she tried to obtain an education, it was nearly impossible. She just wanted a, us to have a chance at life. And so uh, it was... Uh, our, our parents that made the, the sacrifice of moving the family over to the U.S. in hopes of not only surviving, but thriving. Was that a difficult transition for you and your family? Do you have some early impressions, like, I don't know, walking into your first classroom? or? Uh, yeah, there were a lot of firsts. It was very different from, from Mexico. But more than anything, it was the lifestyle that changed. All of a sudden, we became vigilant. We were overlooking our shoulder constantly. I was told not to trust anyone in school, not even teachers or nurses. If I got injured, I kept quiet. If I was sick, I would keep quiet. This idea of not being able to trust anyone, that was very different in Mexico because as a child, I remember running around my grandma's house and chasing bunnies. And then when we came here to the U.S., uh, we were very sheltered and over-vigilant to see who was approaching the house mm. and why somebody was knocking on the door or why was somebody knocking on our neighbor's door and, you know, afraid that they might, someone would come and take them. And so I think that was the, the biggest shock for me. How did you make sense of that or, or how did your parents explain that? Because as I understand it, you weren't aware that you were undocumented until later in life, right? Yeah. So what was that like growing up and not knowing that, but still feeling like you have to always be looking over your shoulder? Yeah, I didn't really understand it. I couldn't comprehend it. It was just, don't trust anyone. Don't tell anyone uh, where you're from. There was even, around around that time, a stigma. You know, I grew up here during the Prop 187 era in California, and the rhetoric was one based on hate, very similar to what we were hearing on the national level today. And so there was even that shame of admitting that I was from Mexico. And that, coupled with the idea of being caught and deported, I didn't really understand it as a child. You know, how do you explain to a child the possibility of being caught and deported or, or hate? How do you explain to a child the rhetoric that was surrounding our, our family? Now that I can go back and see all those instances where I was trying to hide who I was, was because we were undocumented and all the things that we were going through was precisely because we were undocumented. You know, as an example, we suffered homelessness. And now I know it was very difficult for us because we were undocumented to secure a, a job, to be able to pay for the rent, to be able to pass background credit and credit checks required to get a place um, was hard. To be able to prove income was difficult. Mm. So. A lot of things now as an adult that I can go back and reflect on, I know were a direct consequence of being undocumented. But at the moment, being a child, I didn't understand it. Did you speak English when you moved here? No. Was no. that hard to learn? Um, my mom would give us extra English homework, not knowing English herself. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So it was just like another another task that I had at hand as a child. I was lucky enough to enroll in Logan Heights where they had an ESL program. It was a shocker for me to have kids in classrooms that were black and Mexican and white. I think that was, I was really lucky with that. And in the beginning it was difficult to have these conversations with other kids that weren't speaking Spanish, but it was just work. But I was lucky enough to have other compañeros in the classroom that spoke Spanish. So there were some classmates that I could communicate with mm-hmm. in Spanish. What did you uh, dream of being in those days? I read that you were pretty ambitious. Like you wanted to be make a million dollars by the time you were 30. And... <laughs> yeah, I was lucky enough to know from the from very young that I wanted to be a lawyer. But I thought I was going to be an, a criminal defense lawyer. Because not understanding that I was undocumented as a child, I thought everything that was happening to us was because we were poor. And I thought, you know, all these injustices that were happening in my community, sometimes at the hand of our own police department, I thought all of that was because we were in this neighborhood, primarily folks that were struggling financially and primarily brown and black folks. And so I thought we need a criminal defense attorney here. And that coupled again with uh, reading and, and the homework and what my mom was instituting in us and the education that she would give us, even though she was also limited in her education. You know, my, my mom's a stay-at-home mom. Uh, she cleans uh, houses and hotels. And today she works at a taco shop, you know, and so her education's limited, but she knew the importance of math and English. And so you would always see me with the book. As a child, I would read all these books where the lawyer was the hero. And so I thought I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer to protect my family and my neighbors. And it wasn't until years later that I decided to practice immigration law. But it was my mom's vision that was instilled in me from very little. Uh, she didn't tell me to be a lawyer. That just so happened to be from the movies that they would rent and the books that I was reading. I, I do remember one occasion when my mom came home crying from the store. And then years later, she told me that it was because a police officer had shot uh, someone in our neighborhood, uh, a young man. And she thought and was concerned and worried that it would be one of her sons one day. So all those, all those incidences had an impact on me at a level that I didn't understand as a child. But I wanted to be that hero lawyer that would protect our neighborhood. Years later, as I was going to school and working in a law office, my younger brother gets arrested uh, and his car gets turned over to the police. There's no criminal charges, but he nevertheless gets turned over to ICE. And then they start an immigration case and deportation proceedings. And I didn't know anything about immigration law at that point. I didn't know anything about our immigration policies, how the system worked. And so it was that confusion, that anger, the desperation, the frustration my family was going through uh, that made me decide to be an immigration lawyer. When my brother was detained, the immigration officials were asking for $15,000 to get him out of the detention center. But for those of us that are undocumented, to earn one single dollar 
in the black market, as they call it, you know, less than earning less than minimum wage to earn anything um, and to save it, it's it's impossible to save fifteen thousand dollars. And so there we were, um, trying to figure out how to get my brother out of the detention center. And at that point, we had been here well over fifteen years in the U.S. You know, that's this is all we knew. And my younger brother. His Spanish is broken Spanish. So, you know, he was even more confused uh, as to why he was facing deportation after being here in the U.S. for so long. He was transported to an ICE facility about 100 miles from San Diego County, which meant we would have to go through checkpoints. And I risked um, going through one of those checkpoints where immigration officials might question my status. But I knew that that this could very well be the last chance that I had to see my brother. So I risked driving through that checkpoint and going to see my brother at the detention center. And um, I, I, I noticed that my brother was not the same anymore. Being the youngest, I think he was the one that was unaware, really, of what it meant to be undocumented. And, and he was just a... A normal child, <laughs> you know, in high school, my brother was the life of the party. He was always smiling. He was playing sports. His hair was always on point. He, his shoes and his shirt were always matching. Um, I was the nerdy one. But when I walked into that detention center to, to meet with him, he was different. He had been given a jumpsuit. Uh, shoes without shoelaces so that he wouldn't attempt suicide. His hair had outgrown. He hadn't shaved in his face. And he had lost like 15 pounds in the two months that he was there. And I could tell he had been crying, but he was trying to be strong and trying to smile for me. But he really couldn't. And I saw confusion in his eyes and frustration. I knew he had been degraded, dehumanized. He was being referred to by his alien registration number, which is a nine-digit number, and, and not by his name. And that dehumanization solely because we were lacking this piece of paper that said we were authorized to be here. That also changed me, it transformed me. That image of seeing my brother behind the glass wall and the feeling of hopelessness and outrage that after growing up here, studying here, doing everything that we were being told to do, that it wasn't enough, that we still didn't belong here after so long. And because of that confusion, and I realized that I needed to learn immigration law, learn immigration policy, because we weren't sure what was going to happen to my brother. Where, where's your brother now? My brother received an order of removal from that case. My mom, in attempting to save him, testified in his case and was also put in removal proceedings. What, what does that mean? It means that I uh, tried to deport my mom, too. Because of the efforts of so many people, 
fighting for more humane immigration policies and, and pushing for folks like my family to stay here in the U.S., you know, we're, we're put in limbo. And some of us have DACA today, otherwise we would be deportable. Um, some of us have deferred action in one way or another. But, you know, this administration threatened that from their very beginning and started to reopen cases where people were offered deferred action. Cases were closed administratively, but they were reopened with this administration, and now we're seeing people deported, and so I'm afraid we're next. We don't know what's coming. But at least now I am armed with information as an immigration lawyer. At least now I understand what our policies are, what our immigration laws are. Now that I, that I feel like the splendor has been taken off and I can see more clearly. There are other folks out there that are still confused and, and don't know where they stand or their families stand because a lot of us have mixed statuses. You know, we, we have uh, family members that are U.S. citizens, some of those undocumented, some with some level of protection. And, and so it's that, that confusion sometimes that disempowers people. So being an immigration lawyer and standing up for those who have that threat hanging over them at all times of being removed from the country and putting yourself in front of officials who have that power to remove you, who you, you also don't have, you're, you're also undocumented. That sounds, that sounds terrifying. Does that not scare you? <laughs> when, it, when I'm in court, it's all about the client. Um, so I'm 100% focused on my client and not me. But leading up to that, uh, sometimes, you know, there's a waiting period in court. And I do think about that as I've sat on the, on the bench waiting for my case to be called and I hear the judge say the words, I'm ordering you deported. That strikes me at a different level than I believe it strikes other immigration lawyers because I've heard those words when it came to my brother's case. And I imagine them being told to me. And so leading up to the case, and even sometimes after the case, I, and, and I look at the, the, the attorney for the government, I think, this guy is going to enjoy deporting me. <laughs> you know, I get that feeling sometimes where I, I do see the opposite side, the government lawyer just enjoying deporting me you know, and doing so with a smile. And that terrifies me. I have asked our director in San Diego, our ICE director, what happens when my DACA expires? And they have said if they would deport me. Yes. So they know that you're undocumented as you're fighting for these people? Of course, yes. I mean, I sued the president. It's not a secret. And I know as soon as my DACA expires, I'm not only deportable, but they would make good on that promise. Mm. And so that scares me because I've seen these folks in court and I have practiced in front of these judges that have ordered my own family deported. So, yeah, sometimes I'm reminded when other families go through it and they get deported and I see my own family reflected on those community members. And, and I think it's just a matter of time not if, it's when. If things don't change, we don't get more humane immigration policies. 
it's just a matter of time until I hear the words, I'm ordering you removed in my own case. Yeah, so, so you being one of the faces of the lawsuit, the DACA lawsuit against Trump, is a very personal issue for you, which probably makes you one of the perfect people to fight for it because the fi- the, there's no one who's the fire is greater within. Where, where is that case in the, in the process? Our case was heard at the Supreme Court on November 12, 2019. We're waiting for a decision. So as of today, we still have our DACA protection in place. If it wasn't for our efforts in court, if it wasn't for our lawsuit, some of us would have already had our DACA permits expired. Thankfully, uh, we have been winning. We won at the district court level. uh, We won at the appellate level. And now we're at the last step. So right now he's just waiting. It's just, we're just waiting. Like you've done, you've done all you can for it. Right. Hmm. Exactly. But at the same time, you know, DACA was always just a compromise. Uh, we, We wanted a path to citizenship. We wanted protection permanently from deportation. And DACA doesn't offer any of those things. Mm. All DACA does, it gives us a work permit that we renew every two years and that we pay for this. We're paying for the privilege of working. And we contribute to the system as an example, the social security system. I pay a ton in employer taxes and employee taxes. And even then... I will never, ever, ever be able to get a single dollar from our social security system because I'm not a legal permanent resident. I'm not a U.S. citizen. Mm. This privilege that we have of working and being here in the U.S. has an expiration date on it. That was never what we wanted. We wanted a path to citizenship Mm. and be not only seen as American, but be able to have the protections and and the privileges such as voting, having a say in our elections. Mm to fully be part of the society. Is the hopes with this lawsuit that DACA will be reinstated or or something that's a little more permanent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So since September uh, 2017, there, there were folks that never applied for DACA but would have applied for DACA that were left out of the program because it closed on September 15, 2017. Mm-hmm. If we are able to get a favorable opinion, that means we might be able to open DACA so that these folks can apply for it. Last year, we had over 100,000 people graduate from high school without DACA, without any protection from deportation, undocumented folks wondering what their future is going to look like in this country. We, we hope that um, the Supreme Court protects DACA so that we are able to keep it in, in, in the books, that we're able to take advantage of, of being here in the U.S. without the feeling of overlooking our shoulders because we might be deported next. This administration was really smart to use us as political bargaining chips. Every time we go to D.C., and I've been in these conversations with both Democrats and Republicans, they keep asking what we're willing to compromise on in exchange to protect DREAMers, in exchange for DACA or a DREAM Act. Mm. And if we lose this case we come with a disadvantage at the bargaining table. How does it feel to be a client rather than a lawyer in this? <laughs> it's strange to be a client. Um, I, I keep telling myself, be a good client. Don't be that client. 
I place 100% my trust on these lawyers, but I, I am, I don't often keep quiet, so I do voice my opinion um, just because I know this is much more important than any one person. This is about a, a movement. This is about not only 700,000 DACA recipients, but it's a, a, a movement of hundreds of thousands of people and really all 11 million undocumented folks that need this win. And so it's a little strange to be a client, and I hope that I haven't overburdened the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> but because I do understand uh, the nuances in the brief, the arguments, I do understand what the technical language is. I'm able to offer a different opinion. And I think you should ask the lawyers how much they welcome that. <laughs> uh, but from my perspective, I'm trying my best uh, to protect our folks, our undocumented folks, our movement, our momentum. And so hopefully I haven't done too much damage. But it feels strange. Uh, it feels strange to be part of a, of a litigation as a client because there were times in both at the district court level and at the Supreme Court level where, where I just wanted to stand up and scream and, and clarify the reality of being deported. The idea of being deported is very real. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. And it's not just, we're not talking in the abstract. We're seeing ICE deport DACA recipients. That is something that I feel was not exactly emphasized in the courts. How terrified we are. How scared we are uh, of not just losing our jobs, but primarily of being deported. Especially Mm -hmm. for those of us that are here in the border, where we have the double deportation force, where we have Border Patrol and ICE. And now we're hearing talks of the military. We're constantly being told the National Guard's going to be de- deployed, you know, whatever this administration comes up with to terrorize us. And so I think that feeling, being scared, wasn't exactly told to the judges in a way that it was compelling, or at least that's not how I heard it. And so I, uh, part of me wanted to get up and scream and say, no, this is about deportation. This is about hearing the words, I'm ordering you removed, and actually going through the process of being put in a detention center and eventually deported. Mm. It seems like yeah, that, that fear is, you're really using that fear as motivation. It's not paralyzing you. and Because now you're working even outside of the legal space. You are now also the executive, I don't know how you have time for all this, but now you're also the executive director of Border Angels. How did you first get involved with Border Angels? The very first time I heard about people dropping water at the desert was when I was uh, 18 years old in a church group. And I didn't have DACA then, and so my parents prohibited me. From going on the water drops? Yes, for going on the water drop. um, When I received DACA, that was the first thing I did. I signed up to do a water drop with Border Angels, and we went up to the wall. And I remember there was a Border Patrol agent there looking at us. And I remember when I saw the wall for the first time, I was impacted. And I started sobbing because that wall had been the reason why I was so sheltered and constrained. And as much as I love every opportunity that has been offered in this country, that wall was also the reason why I couldn't leave the country. I was encaged and still am today. 
for folks like my parents, those walls are even closer in. And so the sight of the wall was a reminder of how constrained my life has been as a result of my undocumented status. And I remember sticking my hand through that wall and part of me was in Mexico. Part of me was here in the U.S. And at that time, there was a little dog in, in a rancher on the other side, in the Mexican side, that was talking to us. And the little dog was crossing back and forth through that wall, through the slats. And I remember saying, man, that dog has more rights to travel than I do. And so I knew I wanted to be involved with Border Angels from there on. It must be wild that you went from being a volunteer on the Border Angels water drops to now being the executive director. <laughs> how, does that, how does that feel? That, that must be, that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, uh, I served on, on the board uh, for a year and a half. The executive director today, we have a lot of beautiful programs. And really, that's what I'm doing it because uh, Border Angels does such beautiful work. Not only the water drop program, but the ability to do good in the world, I think that was the most enticing part of the job. Mm. <laughs> to be able to provide direct humanitarian aid to folks in Tijuana. Border Angel also supports like 16 migrant shelters in Tijuana. Yes, that's about 15,000 people in Tijuana in the MPP program and the remaining Mexico program uh, uh, being housed in about 32 shelters. We provide assistance to 16 of them. We, we help them with paying things like the water bill or their electricity bill. We provide donations in kind like food. Uh, every two weeks we line up our cars uh, at the office, we load them up with donations, and then we take them across to Tijuana. I say we as an organization because obviously I can't travel. But I see these these uh, videos and these pictures that folks come back with to show when the moment when we provide um, toys or shoes for kids. You know, I see those images and it, it, it reminds me, it takes me back from when I was a, a child, when I was a, newly arrived here. I remember at one point uh, receiving here in San Diego a used toy for Christmas and it was missing parts. It was a, it was a, a, a game and it was missing parts, but I was just so excited to receive a gift that, that Christmas that I was just so grateful and that gratitude, I see it when, when folks come back to me with the images after providing something as simple as shampoo or toilet paper. These kids are just so grateful for the little that they have. They're just so grateful. And then we also have our newly uh, formed um, Immigration Bond Fund program, Familias Unidas. And that is to help folks like my brother was in at one point in detention without being able to pay for their liberty, essentially. We've been able to, so far to help eight migrants, uh, some that have been in detention for eight months. You know, these folks have nothing. And so they remain in there in detention uh, until their case is heard, uh, sometimes with a minimum bond of $1,500, and they still can't come up with it. It's a lot of money for people that are knocking on our doors asking for help. And so Border Angels has been able to allocate $50,000 to help these folks. 
And so I've had the privilege to go into the ICE offices and ask them to bond out folks. And so that is surreal to me, the idea of an undocumented person going to ICE offices and signing the paperwork to release a migrant, an asylum seeker, for example. It makes my day every time. <laughs> it gives me hope that even if we're able to help one person at a time, we're doing good in this world, even if we can't help all 32,000 people. Or um, I think now it's closer to 56,000 people in the MPP program along the southern border. The silver lining, I guess, with this humanitarian crisis that we have here at the southern border is that we've seen an influx of volunteers, people wanting to get involved. And so we're experiencing some growing pains, which is a good thing because people have responded to this call for help. There's families now crossing through the desert. They cannot go through the asylum process and they have to wait uh, nine months or 12 months in Tijuana, which is now the most dangerous city in the world based on the murder rate. And so they see the desert and they become so desperate and they try to cross it. And so we see that migration pattern and luckily, People across the U.S. have come to help with that. I just want to thank folks, uh, anyone that has ever participated in the water drop or any of our programs that has volunteered, not only with Border Angels, but other great organizations that are doing amazing work, like Al Otro Lado on the legal side, for example, just for folks to get involved in one way or another. Uh, if you are unable to physically provide assistance here in San Diego, please visit our website at borderangels.org and get involved. There's many other ways. Stay informed. As I mentioned earlier, education is very important and, and keeping up with what's happening is it's crucial. So borderangels.org. We're also on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Thank you so much, Dulce. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I hope y'all enjoyed getting to know Dulce. Like I said in the intro, we recently jumped on a call with her to get a better understanding on how the coronavirus and the resulting border closure is impacting her work. I also asked her about her biggest concerns on how this will play out moving forward. Oh my God, I keep telling myself, today's the day I'm not going out at all. And I, there's one <laughs> reason or another why I have to go out. What, what uh, are some of those reasons? Well, to p deposit money to the shelters, uh, they won't let us do it uh, online because it's from a nonprofit to an individual. There's a lot of restrictions on on sending money. You know, using like MoneyGram, I have to physically go to the Walmart and deposit money so someone can pick up the cash on the side of the border. Or to bond folks out from the detention center, we spent a good uh, five six hours doing that uh, yesterday. Um, and the challenges that are being in place now with with ICE. Uh, and the federal building, you know, I, like I plan on being indoors all day and indoors all day. And then I just received some uh, requests from a, from a couple of folks from two different shelters asking me for donations because, uh, you know, they're prepping for, for the virus to hit them, too. And I expect to be out and about later today, although I really don't want to because I'm myself. I'm scared. <laughs> uh, I have a, my, my mom that's a little bit. Uh, vulnerable. She's like, you know, in the high risk category. So 
you know, I'm trying to minimize exposure, but at the same time, you know, the job requires that I be out and about. What have been the primary changes to, to the work that Border Angels does? Yes, one of the primary ones has been the shelters. Um, we stopped the Caravan of Love uh, a couple of weeks ago, even before the U.S. federal government announced the closing of the border. Uh, we no longer take donations in kind across the border to, to Tijuana or to Mexicali. So instead, what we're doing is we're donating directly uh, monetary uh, donations um, so that folks can use that money in preparation for the coronavirus. Now the border is closed, so we definitely can't take any uh, donations across the border, and that has been a challenge as well. Um, but we, we promoted social distancing a couple of weeks ago, and with that, we had to cancel the, uh, water, the public water drop and uh, do only smaller, more advanced water drops with our experienced water drop team. Um, so we're we're still doing the work. We're just doing it uh, uh, differently. We're we're promoting social distancing that way. The Familias Unidas uh, Immigration Bond Fund uh, is still very much active, but we don't know whether. But in order for us to place the bond, that means we ourselves have to come out from from uh, quarantine or from isolation and physically go to the federal building and post this bond. Um, so. You know, there's these challenges uh, right now with, with this uh, very real fear of mm-hmm. exposing ourselves and our loved ones. Uh, we posted five bonds this, this week, but these folks have zero criminal history. Four of them are asylum seekers. They have all suffered torture by their own government in one way or another. Horrible, horrible torture. And we put them in a detention center, some of them five, six months. And the government's asking $5,000 to release them. These are asylum seekers. They don't have, you know, a, a dollar to their name, much less so $5,000. So we were able to allow them to come out of the detention center and, and not be exposed to the coronavirus and meet with their family. Unfortunately, ICE is still very much doing enforcement. And not only that, but they, the federal government has requested funding for them to continue to do their border enforcement. So ICE and Border Patrol are very much still patrolling our communities and apprehending people for immigration violations, putting them in a detention center uh, where they are at risk of contracting the virus. We're, we're telling the public to practice social distancing, yet we have this population in federal detention for immigration violations. Um, and, you know, as I told the ICE officers yesterday, this all could be fixed if we just release those folks from the immigration detention center. And then the ICE officers that were uh, dealing with me yesterday wouldn't have been exposed and I wouldn't have been, in, you know, exposed and no one in those detention centers would be exposed. But there we are as uh, immigration lawyers and as uh, nonprofit organizations doing this work because the federal government refuses to release our people from immigration detention. And again, these are folks that uh, are there only because they have, they don't, they're lacking the funds for their liberty. Judges have already determined that they are um, not a risk to the population. They are not a risk of flight. They will uh, likely be showing up for the court hearings. Um, and we're just arbitrarily placing a $5,000 bond uh, on, on their liberty. It's frustrating when the federal government is, you know, telling the public, be safe, uh, practice social distancing and isolation, 
yet we have this very vulnerable population in immigration detention centers. Are they are they taking any kind of protocols? I, I mean, I mean, ICE uh, in order to ensure, I guess, just safer a safer environment so that the virus is not spread, or is it just business as usual for them? They have uh, actually their form of precaution is by restricting visitors to the detention centers by restricting uh, the legal visits and uh, lawyers um, are required to take certain precautions like uh, wear masks and, and gloves and things to protect ourselves as immigration lawyers from, from the client. However, inside of the detention center, you still have a large amount of, of people gathered in that detention center exposing, um, you know, be, being exposed to potentially getting uh, the virus in there. Uh, so there are restrictions that are in place, but they're not uh, from the humanitarian perspective. Um, you know, they're the wrong things to focus on. If we really wanted to protect those vulnerable people in there, especially the ones that have, uh, at, that are a higher risk with medical conditions or of, eight, or of a certain age, they're the ones that should be released um, and immediately. So the kinds of precautions that eyes are taking you know, and they're focused on on the public uh, going into the detention center and not really focused on protecting the folks that are already in the detention center. But as far as the, like the federal building, they have closed down the, the, the federal building downtown where the ICE uh, uh, enforcement office is. And mm -hmm. so in order to place a bond or go up there, they have restricted that area very much and they have uh, stopped the ICE check-in for now. So people that would go in and check in sometimes yearly, sometimes monthly uh, with ICE, they have restricted that. So they're no longer doing that for the moment. Uh, so I, at least they're doing that to protect people where they don't have to come in and, and check in with ICE and possibly be deported that day. But they're still very much doing uh, enforcement. What are, what are some of your biggest concerns or what are some of the biggest issues related to the border now that it's closed and the virus. Well, my biggest concern is in Tijuana, there's no labor laws protecting folks. And our fear is that they're not going to be practicing isolation. They're not going to be practicing social distancing because they cannot afford it because the laws there are not protecting those folks. Our biggest fear is that the virus is going to reach the shelters and they don't have the adequate supplies to combat this. They don't have the medicines. They don't have the, um, you know, all the Lysol and the antibacterial gels that we were buying here, um, I'm afraid that they're not going to have them in, in those shelters or even a way to do like laundry. Uh, you know, all of that becomes challenging when you have 250 people in a shelter. We're so grateful actually that they have uh, temporarily closed the border because a lot of folks were from the U.S. buying supplies in Tijuana and potentially exposing these folks in Tijuana who are uh, very vulnerable right now uh, in those shelters. So I know there's uh, other organizations on the ground that are helping folks be, uh, get prepared for it, like uh, um, the Refugee Health Alliance and the doctors from Border Kindness are on the ground ensuring that folks uh, will have uh, basic medication, but I'm afraid that they can't reach every single migrant in Tijuana or in Mexicali at the moment.
Only Here is a KPBS podcast hosted by me, Alan Liliental. It was written and produced by Kinsey Moreland. Emily Jankowski is the director of sound design. Lisa Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is the director of programming. KPBS podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. Go to kpbs.org to make a donation or become a member today. Thank you.